Research now tells us that only 8.6% of the things you worry about or are afraid of will ever happen. It keeps getting lower and lower because we keep worrying more and more. That in positive perspective, 91.4% of the things you worry about are not going to happen. Think of the amount of time spent in fear that never matters. Other than how it rips you to shreds inside and all those physiological areas we talked about. And then gives you a whole different perspective and lens of walking through your life. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen anderson Abril here with my co-host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. Hello, Love and Life listeners. Producer Tim here. And today we're sharing with you a presentation that Pastor Elliot gave on the topic of anxiety titled, Attacking Anxiety with Action. In this talk, Pastor Elliot defines anxiety, gives research-backed data on the ways we face it in modern-day society, and steps we can take to address it in our own lives. Additionally, we've added the link to Pastor Elliot's PowerPoint that he used during this talk. So if you'd like to download that, please feel free to do so. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this talk by Pastor Elliot Anderson. So each week, the title of these strongly in action, in movement, in countering these very difficult elements of mental health. Now, the truth is that it's real. Anxiety is real. Psalm 94, 19, when anxiety was great within me, your, your comfort, Lord God, brought me joy. So even back in scriptures, long before anxiety was used as a term or a phrase, we know it existed. And anxiety is not always negative. Anxiety can be very, very healthy. Sometimes when there's a tremendous fear that just approaches us or maybe there's a car accident in front of us and a car starts rolling our way, at that moment you should be anxious. That's your body's response to an incoming fear. So sometimes simply recognizing anxiety as itself is not always negative or wrong can lessen some of its power. What are we most anxious about according to research? These aren't in order. These are just the top eight. As you look at these on the screen, as you look at these on the notes or write down, I would start, if we're going to attack this stuff, I would start jotting down to yourself, which one is getting you right now? Is it money scenarios, work issues, some school of students or teachers, administrators, relationships, health? A lot of health issues make it very, very difficult for us to feel calm and feel peace. Our future, future as a nation, future as a family, future as a relationship, as a church. And then, of course, basic safety and security. That sometimes is in doubt or in question, even when we are in loving communities. So anxiety is real. Anxiety can sometimes be quite positive. Because it's our natural response to let us know something might be out of whack, something might be wrong, something might be dangerous, and these are the normal things we recognize which one might get you. Here's some anxiety symptoms in a bunch of different categories that we'll look at and then start to immediately look at what Scripture says about the reality of this. 
So I'm not saying that if we have these symptoms, you're wrong or you're making them up. Your body is responding to a real or perceived fear. Cardiovascular, the pounding heart, the chest pain, rapid heartbeat, blushing. When I was having my adrenal failure four years ago, I was absolutely 100% convinced I was dying of a heart attack at least 17 times. And they kept testing my heart, really have an amazing heart. Like 99.8% oxygenation as a 54-year-old. They were pretty proud of that. They're like, you have no issue with your heart. You I go, went and got that big tomb thing or whatever you go sit in to check all your arteries or whatever. Sorry, Stu, I'm murdering the terms here. But they said completely clear, zero, zero risk of plaque, zero risk of any of that thing. And I drive home and convinced I was going to have a heart attack. Anybody been there? Sometimes those symptoms are telling us things that aren't true. Sometimes they are, and we need to be alerted to it. That's what makes it so difficult. Respiratory, fast breathing, shortness of breath, neurological, dizziness, headaches, sweating, tingling, numbness, usually neurologically primary. Some of you know you get a really stiff neck if you're hurting or a bad headache. Or for me, it's like I'll get stomach cramps or feel nauseous. Normally, our bodies will hold on to one neurological response that will include some cardiovascular and respiratory. That's why one of the best ways when you first feel that panic or the anxiety hit, what do they tell you? The breathing. Uh, Three, four, five, four, five, six. Breathe in for three. Hold it for four. Release for five. It automatically helps you even if you're not stressed. So what are we going to do right now? We're going to practice, all right? So we're going to breathe in for three, then we're going to hold it for four and release it for five. Ready? Breathe in through your nose. Go. One, three, hold it. One, two, three, four. Release it slowly. One, two, three, four, five. Even if you weren't stressed, the body will automatically start to recenter itself simply from that one small exercise. What does Jesus tell us in a general sense about worry? This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Worry about your life. Multiple times in scriptures, multiple times for Christ, he tells us, and the grammar used is command language not to worry. It's not Jesus sitting around with you going, you know what? It'd probably be better for you if you don't worry so much. Jesus saying, stop. Don't worry. One of the things I had to do when I was going through that adrenal failure, which was messing with my hormones and making me have these panic and anxiety attacks and stuff, was starting to counter and actually refusing to believe or refusing to hear the messages that I knew were lies. I would write down on a piece of paper, 99.8% clear, zero on my, I'd write them down and read them out loud. And like, I have to block, I have to refuse. Jesus tells me not to worry. Here's some other ones. Choking, dry mouth, stomach pains, nauseous, vomiting, diarrhea, musculoskeletal, muscle aches and pains, especially neck, shoulders, back, restlessness, tremors, shaking, inability to relax. That's a lot. That's just five areas. There's many, many others. Sometimes we have all of those or touch in every element of those categories at the same time. It's overwhelming. Our anxiety symptoms, those five categories, as we start to learn how to attack those, we have to recognize this very important equation immediately. In the spiritual aspect of attacking these mental health issues, 
We can't allow to seep into these symptoms and saying, well, God wouldn't want me to have restlessness. God wouldn't want me to have a worry and fear, which is true. But just because we have them doesn't mean God is all of a sudden withholding himself from us or loves us less because we've been sinful or we've been wrong. It's not conditional with the Lord on those. And then the lack of belief and purpose. We must believe in our purpose. We must understand that we are here to glorify God within our relationships, the context of our career, our gifts, our skills, our abilities. And yes, it's okay for those to serve ourselves in some capacity to take care of our basic provisions and needs for ourselves and our family, but it almost always needs to have altruistic and with others in order to truly fulfill and stay hopeful. What does the Lord say through Isaiah? Isaiah 40, 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So these psychological truths along with these spiritual truths need to be in partnership So I recognize what's true about my condition, what I'm feeling, what I'm anxious about. And I also recognize what God's word says about it and recognize that I need to renew my strength through the Lord. He surrounds us, protects us. That's where we will find it almost always includes others as well. Have you recognized how many times when you are feeling anxious or fearful or frustrated, simply talking with one of your friends or family members you trust? And that loves you and that loves the Lord can instantly make you feel better, even if the situation is not solved. An anxiety epidemic, a definition in the non-medical term of epidemic is something that affects a large number of individuals within a population, community, or region at the same time. Do you think we're in an anxiety epidemic? The Census Bureau Household Pulse Survey, they started these during covid these pulse surveys along with the census. And in 2023, so this year, this is what they found. 50% of adults 18 through 24 are living with a psychologically determined anxiety that is close to disorder. One half. My Judson students here, do we know that's true on campus? Absolutely. That's, that's not startling to me. As someone who works in higher education, I know it's not startling to our teachers who work in schools and education, 18-year-olds. 50%. Another survey by CBS News just this spring said that one-third of high school senior girls across the nation have contemplated suicide. One-third. That's hard to even comprehend. Not just our young people. 31% of all adults, any ages are dealing with anxiety at levels of dysfunction, disorder level. It's now by far, I think it was 13 or 14% higher now than depression and alcohol disorders, which have been the leading tandem ever since they recorded disorders and dysfunction in the psychological mental health field. So like 2017 or 18 or 16, it would have been, I can't remember exactly which date, Anxiety was in its common third position, and since then, it's leapfrogged, and it's racing ahead of all other disorders. So it is an epidemic. It's a psychological epidemic. The National Library of Medicine gives this medical mitigation response. It's a coordinated response or expression. A coordinated response should be implemented focusing on situational awareness, public health messaging, reduction of transmission, and the care and treatment of the disease. In this case, we're talking about anxiety. That's the National Library of Medicine.
Now we look at the anxiety from a biblical mitigation. We recognize what the psychological truths are, what the statistics are telling us, and we need to learn those, understand those, and move in those, and at the exact same time, make sure we're firmly rooted in Scripture. Anxiety, biblical mitigation. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love & Life family. So anxiety, biblical mitigation, an intentional response focused on God's word, situational awareness, positive self-talk, physiological regulation of those categories, and sleep. So in anxiety, let's know what the definition is. Take aggressive action against the place or enemy forces with weapons or armed force, typically in a battle of war. If 50% of our young people and 30% of all adults are in an epidemic level of anxiety, do we not need to take aggressive action? Are we not in a war? We are in a mental health war. We know that any war that attacks people, emotionally, relationally, psychologically, spiritually, has some rootedness in who? The evil one. So Satan is winning this war against evangelical Christians. He is the enemy force. I'm not saying all anxiety is from Satan. Some psychological, physiological conditions take place. Some is a natural part of our personality and temperament. But overall, if we ignore the reality that we are in spiritual warfare... In this anxiety realm, we're missing a huge piece. We need to get our weapons. Remember what Paul talks about? Ephesians 6, our armor of God. We need to put on preparing for war, in particular against anxiety. Just read this and believe it. We need dense anxiety with biblical truth and strategic mental health practices. The first thing we need to do is diminish the word anxiety. Too much in our culture today, anxiety with a giant capital A means everything. It was not even a psychological term that was used in any of our diagnostic statistical manuals or any of our counseling language until 1980. I didn't hear about the word at all, even if I read it in the Bible. I didn't hear about it in a psychological counseling way until I was in seminary in the early 90s. Any of you else who grew up 50s, 60s, 70s, it wasn't a term we used or heard about. What it means is all these things. And one of the keys to diminishing the power of the word and the power of the movement over you is to start to segregate and recognize what you're truly feeling and not give the word anxiety so much power. So rather than saying I'm anxious, if you're worried, say you're worried. Like any time before I get up to speak, whether it's here, at these conferences, in my classroom, wherever it is, I'm not anxious. I love to speak. God's given me gifts in that. I've done enough of it that it feels very comfortable. But I do have apprehension and anticipation. I air drum up here in the front all the time. I'm sure you guys see that. I'm in my full mode. I could use that word. I say I'm anxious about speaking. You go, oh, poor Pastor Elliot. That's not, I didn't mean I'm having anxiety. I'm saying I'm apprehensive and anticipating and energetic, like a pregame for an athlete. So it's really helpful to diminish the word in itself 
and start using these words and others to break it down. What am I truly feeling rather than just saying, I'm anxious about this, I'm anxious about that, I'm anxious about that. And then this word just starts to overwhelm us in itself. Here's the definition. And look how the definition itself spreads it out. A feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about something with an uncertain outcome. And our body reacts to it as if it's a perceived threat. So the definition of anxiety itself starts to spread out the word. A bunch of attack verses today. Every time we learn a truth, we're going to come back with scripture. Second Corinthians 10.4, the weapons we fight with. Why did Paul keep using these military things? I know he was like a kind of vicarious military guy. If he wasn't like a Pharisee and a theological genius, I think he'd have been at war. And so he uses these terms all the time, but he also uses them because they're aggressive, assertive, metaphysical understanding. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We must believe that we have within us the ability through the Holy Spirit that lives within us to demolish anxiety in our life. Demolish it. Pulverize it. Eliminate it. Wipe it out. That doesn't mean it won't come occasionally because our body is reacting to what's out there in front of us. Fearful things take place. Anxious things take place. But if it has a stronghold, it is owning you. And we need to release the stronghold through the power of Jesus Christ. You might have heard of some of these acronyms, the root of anxiety. They're in the textbooks and everything that we use in psych and counseling. False evidence that appears real. I think that's a good one. The next most common one is forget everything and run. When we see or perceive a fear, our amygdala fires these responses out. That gets our sympathetic nervous system firing up. And that's when we get that freeze, flee, or fight response. So sometimes fleeing danger, scripture teaches us, sometimes we flee the evil one when we sense him. Sometimes the best fight is to flee. Sometimes if you're super worried or upset or anxious about a a big party or something that you kind of want to go to, you kind of don't want to go to, sometimes the best response is not to go, to flee and stay away. Fighting does not always mean we go right into a storm where we don't have the power, the encouragement, the peace, and the joy to do it. The one that I created, this acronym, is the one underneath evaluation and response. So we have our spirit leading the lens of Christ and the Lord and His Word, a faithful evaluation of what's taking place, And then a response to it. Too often, we have a fearful evaluation, even as believers, and then we do nothing. And then that fear just starts to take root, and then we worry and worry and worry and worry and get more and more upset. Research now tells us that only 8.6% of the things you worry about or are afraid of will ever happen. It keeps getting lower and lower because we keep worrying more and more. That in positive perspective 91.4% of the things you worry about are not going to happen. Think of the amount of time spent in fear that never matters. Other than how it rips you to shreds inside in all those physiological areas we talked about. And then gives you a whole different perspective and lens of walking through your life. So a faithful evaluation and a response. Fear not is over 300 times in Scripture. Two of the most succinct ones that fit nicely on a PowerPoint. First Peter 3.13. Who's Peter talking about? 
That's his cyclical or circular letter that he sent out to all the people who are Christians during Nero's oppression and all the scattering. So he said, don't fear what those others fear that are trying to kill us. Wipe us out. Don't be frightened. Doesn't that seem hard that Peter would send that message out to those who are literally running for their lives? What is Peter saying? Peter's saying, who surrounds us? Roman Nero, of course. But Peter goes, who's stronger? Who's more powerful? Who's more majestic? Who, who has our back and our heart and our soul forever, even if we do get killed? Peter's saying, we don't fear what they fear. We don't be frightened. Fear and love. That's why all the way back to what Tim wrote in that equation about doubting God's love is so critical here because if we're doubting that God, God's love, then we start to have fear that God's not taking care of us and then we're fearing that we can't take care of us. There's no fear in love. Another section of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's a very simple proclamation you've heard it many times i'm sure but we use it in counseling especially in trauma healing care from crises stay present we have to walk through parts of the past we have to talk about a little bit stay present don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow will worry about itself it's almost a little sarcasm from jesus i think gentle sarcasm like why are you tripped out today? Because tomorrow's going to have plenty of things to trip out, and the day after that's going to have plenty. So just be in today. Each day has enough of its own troubles. Have you ever had a really difficult Monday, and your whole Sunday was ruined because you're worried about Monday? I'm not saying Monday doesn't have things that are legitimately worrisome, but you might as well wait till Monday morning to worry about them. Why spend your whole Sunday? Are you, is there anything you're going to be able to do on Sunday that's going to change Monday? Not likely. That could have gone through a ton. I just chose a a couple categories. Now we're going to use that mitigation sentence we talked about from what the census and all the health experts were saying and put it into scriptural mental health application. Here's some simple questions to ask in faithful evaluation matters. What am I fearful of right now and why? If you have a really deep-rooted fear response to certain things in life, you might have to ask this 50, 100 times a day. And sometimes we don't know why we're worried. We're walking across our work environment. We're walking across the school campus. We're on our way home, and we start to have these anxious, fearful things. We don't even know why. So stop and ask yourself why. And if your anxiety is consuming me, stop. Demystify the word and start to get it broken down more. What am I fearful of? What am I worried about? What am I apprehensive about? Start to break it down in its term. What does God's word say about this? Jesus tells me not to worry about what I'm wearing, what I'm doing, how I'm going through life. He says not to worry about tomorrow today's got enough right so using god's scripture immediately that i have comfort and joy through god even when i am anxious and what do i need to do to attack it immediately it is hard patterns for us to change but in the majority of the time when we're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety things we pull away from people get more isolated and just pour into our fear and if you combine that with social media stuff like i'm going to show you in a minute it gets it 15 times as bad. Attack verse again from Paul. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. It is a battle. It is a war. We have to fight. We have to take action. We can't be passive in response to all these mental health issues we'll cover the next six weeks. Second major issue is our self-talk. If you've been in my classes like Sarah and Olivia have, 
We go over this over and over and over again, and it's so important for all of us of all ages. We all talk to ourselves, say 60 to 80, up to 80% of those as self-reported, right? Because it's not like the interviewer is going to be able to read your mind. So we as people are reporting to the research, up to 80% of those are negative, And up to 95% of those we repeat over and over and over again. We say things like, I'm not good enough. I'll never make it. I'm so stupid. Why can't I figure this out? We're just negative, negative, negative self-talk. 95% of the 80% are repeated over and over and over again. If we go back to the other statistic we talked about, that over 90% of it will never happen Think how much extra time is done in the negative world of self-talk. At a minimum, research says we need a three-to-one ratio of positive thoughts to counter the negative ones, and then we have to do the exact same thing. Repeat the positive over and over and over again to defeat the negative, negative, negative. You've probably heard the statistic before. I think I've given it in here before. But it takes nine positive verbal affirmations of us to counter one negative. That's the out loud spoken word, right? You've had a great day at work. You've done a good job. And then one of your coworkers or a boss says something just a little bit, you know, I hope you have a better day tomorrow. You're like, did I have a bad day? You know, and we, it, that was a neutral statement, but we take it and go, oh boy. And then all the good things of the day are completely forgetting, forgotten. And now we're stuck here. Now everything we're thinking about the rest of the day is negative. You know, those shampoo commercials when we were younger, they always talked about shampoo and rinse and repeat. That's what we need to do in positive self-talk. Immediately counter with scripture to counter the negative and then start to believe about ourselves what we know Christ thinks about us. If you don't have the confidence, you don't have the faith in self, recognize that God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God said you are his child and he will never leave you or forsake you. And he tells you to quit worrying about so much stuff, right? Believe what God says about you if you don't have the power to believe yourself. We know these verses. Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Pure, lovely, commendable. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What Paul's saying in these kind of command languages, the inference is, is that don't think about all the other ones. Whatever's not true. Whatever's dishonorable. Whatever's unjust. So if you're in one of those negative spirit moods and you recognize faithful evaluation of self and what you're thinking about, Majority of time, your outward expression of bad attitude, anger, whatever it is, is based on the internals and what you're believing that isn't true and that is not lovely. Think about these things. Physiological regulation, our sympathetic overwhelm, the network of nerves that helps our body in fight or flight, actively increases when stressed, anxious, or active. And when Tim teaches us about PTSD in about five weeks, if you're going through that trauma, recovering all that crisis, it's activated all the time. So you're stuck in it. So then anything can set off the same crisis or trauma response as if the massive issue that did hit you is happening over and over and over again. So we have to have some physiological regulation. Here's three ways to attack the physiological regulation that are really important, really foundational, and relatively simple. It's a sedentary lifestyle, caffeine overload. The average person in the U.S. walks between 3,000 and 4,000 steps a day. That's it. Anything under 5,000 by medical professionals is considered sedentary, meaning your whole body and life is way underworked, under movement, underflowing. 
If I gave Stu 20 minutes here, he would be able to pour into this area in so much other realms. I'd encourage you to ask him. So as an entire nation, we're at minimum a thousand to two thousand just simply walking steps below what we need for regulatory functioning every single day. Anything under 10,000 or anything above 10,000 is where 12,500 is considered strong activity. This is just generalized medical information. So I've known these kind of things for a long, long time, and my kids will tell you, and my wife as well, that I am very obsessed about my steps. And if it's 9.30 at night, which you know for me means I'm ready to go to bed, and I look at my phone, and I'm at 9,500, I look at Angie and go, will you walk with me, please? (laughs) It has become obsessed on the positive side, and I found when I have those really difficult days, like I did on Friday with many very difficult counseling sessions, I call Angie in advance and say, I need extra steps tonight. I just need to unwind and unload. And sometimes I'm very talkative with her. I know that won't surprise you. Really quiet, which means maybe 10,000 words on a, a walk instead of 30,000. But anything under five is sedentary. Anything above 10,000 is active. So simply in this battle with anxiety, just jumping your walking steps up will help immediately. You can do them outside as much as possible. You get another benefit of nature, fresh air, etc. How about caffeine overload? Most consumed psychoactive drug in the world. It's still categorized that way because it crosses the blood-brain barrier and gets into our system, into our brain pretty quickly and moves us within 20 to 45 minutes. When I was growing up in the 70s, I barely remembered my teachers drinking a coffee or two, or if they did, it was in the teacher's lounge. I remember my parents having a cup of black coffee in the morning. But now in elementary schools, you will see a first grader showing up to school with a 16-ounce coffee. So what has happened in our lifestyle has matched the progression of anxiety as the number one condition. Why is anxiety partially jumped from third place to first place and Outpacing everyone is partly because of caffeine, based on these next facts and statistics. So 300 to 400 milligrams a day, I know in my own research, I'm sure Dr. Stu would say the same, I would want you to cut that in half at minimum to consider it safe, and that you better be done by 11 a.m. because it doesn't get out of your system. If you're still drinking coffees and caffeinated drinks and what they call energy drinks, which is the biggest lie I've ever heard in marketing history, You're trying to sleep with your body still zooming in caffeine. And then if you're constantly doing that over and over and over again, your body can never settle back down. You're constantly in an agitated state physiologically, which is going to affect your mental processes. So here's some basic stats here. Large Coke 53, Diaku, the Panera charge drinks 260. Nina, what's going on with our Panera drinks? That's that's criminal. (laughs) <laughs> you just deliver them. You just hand them out. How about the large Dunkin' drinks? 431. Starbucks, 415. That's one large drink. It is not uncommon in the college environment, I'm sure it's similar for you in your work environments, for students to have three or four large coffees per day. Think about the amount of stimulants in your system that is supercharging your brain not to relax or rest. Rolling. So the research keeps jumping on this. 
It says to not scroll for at least 30 minutes after you wake up. What do most of us do when we wake up? Immediately get on our phones. They say it's the equivalent of a a wartime searchlight. You know, the ones they put out, those huge ones that are like used car lot openings or, you know, those huge ones that come out and like shine the light. They say medically it's the exact same thing you're doing to your brain if you get up from sleep, look at your phone, and start to activate and scroll, scroll, scroll. You are shocking your brain, and it's awful for you, and it can't really regulate the rest of the day. So when we do these in class, you at least start 30 minutes, get all their other morning routines going. It can change your processing almost immediately. It used to be only 15 minutes before bed, and every time they run the research, they're including it more and more and more. Now we're up to two full hours before you go to sleep to avoid scrolling. They've also found a part of the brain that they now know is linked directly with depression if we scroll between 11 at night and 3 in the morning. When does most of our worry and fear and anxiety happen? Between 11 and 3. When we can't sleep and we're frustrated and we're worried and we're anxious. And then the infinite scrolling that came into place about 13 years ago, I think it was, where you don't have to hit things. you just It's like a dopamine slot machine. And the founder of that, I can't remember his name again. I couldn't remember it last conference. I can't remember it right now. The founder of it, if you Google it, regrets creating it because he knows. He's a genius, obviously, to create these things. And he knows he's hurt people rather than help them. What happens? We get fixated. We get in a trance-like state. And it guarantees physiological anxiety. They say maybe 8 to 10 minutes of scrolling in a row is about what our brain can handle. And then you got to get off. So think about if you're doing it for two hours, three hours. First thing when you get up, before you go to sleep, this is not, you are, it's like you're getting up and doing jumping jacks and trying to sleep at the same time. You can't do it. Paul says, don't conform to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The world around us is saying to do these very things we've been talking about, and we have to counter them. Our satisfaction and joy in life is directly related to our satisfaction and joy in our relationships. Elliot and I are here to help. We'd love to design a workshop, seminar, or weekend retreat for your organization. We'll bring the psych research, of course, along with over 60 years of combined experience in psychotherapy. We'll share science-based therapeutic techniques within the context of a Christian worldview. We can level up in our relationships. Contact our producer, Tim May, at tim at loveandlifemedia.com to book us. Last category is sleep. 44% of us don't have consistent sleep schedules at all. And one of the most regulating processes you can do is relatively go to sleep the same time every night and get up the same morning at the same time within ballpark. Many of you have jobs or scenarios where you can't. Grandparents with new English bulldogs named Snorty that don't sleep well. Some of us have scenarios that's going to be difficult. But again, the research shows very quickly, if you simply go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time, majority of days, you're automatically taking your anxiety levels and your fear levels way down. By nature, I am a horrific sleeper. Like many ADHDs, I don't need a lot of sleep. I've flipped myself completely out of bed at every single house except this one. It's the first one I haven't flipped myself out of bed just like a fish. I wish I was making it up. 
Angie's been elbowed, kicked, hit, slapped, all just by my flip motions. I will flip completely in bed without even knowing I'm doing it. A sleeper. In high school and college, I'd sleep three hours a day, maybe four. Up all night, in the middle of the night, getting up, go to school, caffeine, etc. Then I married someone who's super regulated, super structured, and super linear. And I thought to myself, and she probably was asking me to as well, and in her wisdom, I probably need to go to sleep somewhat the same time she does and get up somewhat in the same time. And lo and behold, the ADHD symptoms went way down. They didn't disappear, but they went way down. Sometimes the best thing to do when you're super anxious, super fearful, get off your phone, get in some meditation and prayer, take a long walk, get a hot bath or shower, and then go to bed. One third of us don't get enough sleep. 21% have chronic sleep issues. 54% of us state anxiety is the reason we can't sleep, and yet we know sleep is number one thing to counter anxiety. A couple more attack verses. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. This is Jesus talking, and I will give you rest. Proverbs 3.24, when you lie down, you will be sweet. Those might be verses you want to put right by your bed and meditate on those before you sleep. Not on TikTok, not on emails from your boss that's really annoying and sends you late emails on Sunday night before work the next day. Something in a positive mental reflection that starts to prepare your summary slide or two here. We need to take aggressive actions against our anxiety with biblical truth, strategic mental health practices, situational awareness, positive self-talk, physiological regulation, and our sleep. A final summative verse. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him. All of it, because he cares for you. We can't doubt God's love. We can't doubt the truth of what God's word says about anxiety and fear, along with the psychological research that is telling us we're in it. Don't attack this and correct it and be super strong in it. But these are really serious issues. Loneliness next week. The Surgeon General just came out and said we have an epidemic of loneliness. That's the Surgeon General. They're not even trained in the psychological counseling realm. And he is saying that. Anxiety, depression, addiction. PTSD, and condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you surround us and we know the battle belongs to you. And we know, Lord, at times we do have an anxious heart. Father, help us to believe in your word, believe in your truth, and to counter and attack and fight the good fight of faith, even within this mental health anxiety issue. Father, we know the evil one has influence here. And we're asking you and your angels, Lord, to defeat them and to bind them and block them from influence and degradation of our soul. Lord, may we not believe the lies we tell ourselves. May we believe your truth. If we can't believe it about ourselves, believe how you feel about us. Lord, when we're feeling afraid and have fear, may we have a faithful evaluation and respond to that fear, to attack it if we can, verbally, emotionally, writing things down sharing with a friend, taking it to you in prayer, out loud, calling upon your throne and your victory. Father, as a church, Solid Rock wants to be a safe and secure mental health place, part of your temple. And we want to be strong and secure in these areas, Lord, so we can help others when we know this epidemic is in our neighborhood, right here, in our homes, it's in our churches and communities. 
We praise you, Lord, and we thankful for you, Lord, especially in your faithfulness. Lead us forward, Lord, fighting this battle, which is your battle with you. Amen. Thank you for listening. Again, if you'd like the PowerPoint to Elliot's presentation, you can find that in the description. We hope that Pastor Elliot's talk gave you some practical steps on not only what anxiety is, but how we can address this epidemic, maybe in our own lives or maybe a friend or family members. If there's someone you know who's dealing with anxiety that this episode could be beneficial for, please consider sharing it with them. And please remember to head over to loveandlifemedia.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter. There you'll find other resources that we think will be greatly beneficial to you. As Dr. Karen and Pastor Elliot would say, love and life exists to help us all align our mind, body, and spirit for empowered relationships. And as always, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.